Welcome to Tea and Teaching, the educational podcast you can listen to in your tea break. You're listening with me, Arthmore, and with me, as always, is Mike Harrell. Hi, Mike. Hi, Arthur. How are you? I'm not too bad. How are you today? What are you drinking today? Uh, I've gone for a lovely Sri Lankan Ceylon tea. Ah, oh, back to Mike Harrell classic. How's it going down? There are literally three teas on my rotation, which is green, Ceylon and Builders. Sometimes so, you go decaf. <laughs> occasionally, yeah. Yeah. What are you drinking? I've gone for a, uh, a fusion of aniseed, fennel and cardamom. And I've had to write it down and bring up the tea bag because I couldn't remember that. Um, it's, it's called a clean tea. So apparently it will make me clean. It will make me feel new. Feel new is what it says. I don't know what to say about it. It sounds very interesting. I'll tell you if I feel new at the end of the podcast. Um, oh, yeah. Anyway, have you been watching, reading, doing anything exciting this week? Uh, well, we're deep in deep in timetable in season at the moment, so time is limited. Um, but I have watched Lance on iPlayer, all about Lance Armstrong, and I, I would strongly recommend it's two parts, but I think about three hours long in total. So I strongly recommend that to anyone. And I tell you what I have listened to this week is a, a podcast called uh, Pixel Leadership Book Club, uh, which is really cool. It's like 30, 40 minutes of a couple of school leaders summarising a book that they've read that has had an impact on their leadership in their school. And I've really enjoyed that. There's been some really good discussions around some really cool books as well. So I'd recommend that podcast after you've listened to ours. And after you've given ours a five-star rating, you can go and listen to that and give that a five-star rating as well. Nice early plug for our own podcast there, Mike. Um, <laughs> I've been watching on iPlayer, maybe the best documentary of all time, Gods of Snooker. Um, a three-part documentary about snooker in the 80s. And it is phenomenal. If you like snooker, you'll love it. If you don't like snooker, you'll love it. I guarantee a love of snooker. It's incredible. You've watched it as well, haven't you? Yeah, I've completed it. Yeah, finished that one. Uh, completed it. Completed yeah, it. awesome. Awesome. What a time to be alive. Devastated. I was born in the mid-80s and don't remember any of it. Yeah, apparently the 80s were perfect. Nothing was bad in the 80s. It looks incredible. Um, yeah, what a great time to be alive. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about professional de development. So, Go, put the kettle on, get yourself a cup of tea. And when we're back, we're going to be talking about professional development. See you in a moment. Welcome back to Team Teaching. Today, we are talking about professional development. To structure this conversation, Arthur, I'm going to use the uh, 2016 document called the, stand, the sorry, Standard for Teachers Professional Development from the DfE. Why wouldn't we use a DfE document? They're known for being fantastic and useful, and we're not being sarcastic in the slightest. Um, but I think, actually, of all the DfE documents I've read, actually, this is quite a decent one. I don't know how you found it, Arthur. When you Normally, I like to read through a document and make noises like, oh, and oh, and oh. And this one, I found myself going, oh. Yeah. Oh. So uh, I think I've summarised the podcast quite well there. But as you said, we're going to go through this is a five part document of the recommendations from them. And we're going to talk through each of those five and kind of say whether we as individuals and from our individual experience um, agree with some of their recommendations, uh, anything we found from how it's been implemented. Um, 
and also talk about maybe wider impact on the school. So do you want to leave from part one, Mike, part one? Yeah, part one. So professional development should have a focus on improving and evaluating pupil outcomes. So essentially, you should only do professional development that's going to have a direct impact on how well students do in classrooms. Um, well, I, I think, think that's, that's a really interesting sentence because it's a really obvious sentence. But how many times have you done CPD where you've gone, I don't, I don't get how this is going to have an impact on pupils' outcomes? So I think as a part one, it's a really good thing to just have in your mind whenever you're organising or thinking about booking some CPD in. It's Ofsted training, isn't it? I remember sitting at a school once and, and just having a day of Ofsted training, understanding the criteria. We're going to get inspected this year. Let's make sure we understand what they're going to inspect us on. It's like, okay, so we get a good, we get an outstanding. Does that have a direct impact on how well students do in the classroom, how well they develop as individuals, how well they do academically? No. So we shouldn't be doing that training. Uh, that's training that can be done via an email, via a meeting. Um, at another time. I think when I sit in a CPD session, I want to be able to take things away straight away into my classroom, implement them and see an impact, not necessarily straight away, but at some point in my teaching, I want to see an impact on students. And I think from that, as part of part one, the document says it has to be explicitly relevant to the participants. And that's something I think is always really interesting in schools is getting CPD that is relevant to every single person in that room. I know you lead a lot of the CPD in your current school. Mike. How, how do you get around that problem of finding something that is relevant to everyone in the room? You're never going to hit everyone. If, I think that's the first rule, but you've got to hit as many as you can. You've got to meet the needs of as many as possible. You're saying while you're teaching, you know, you, you're going to try and meet the needs of every single student in that classroom, but you won't succeed in that every single lesson. Um, so I think you try and hit as many as possible. We do a, a CPD survey at the end of every year. We get the thoughts and the input of staff in the school. Um, we get their you know, ratings of sessions and how impactful they found that to be. Um, but we also measure it, measure it in terms of the quality assurance we do around school, if that's possible. And that's a big debate whether that's possible or not to measure if a teacher's getting better or not. Uh, but I did, I went on a course this week and, uh, Apparently, according to the, the DfE, in fact, in 2005, and the evaluating the impact of continuous professional development, they found that 10% of CBD evaluations rarely influenced planning of future CPD, which I guess the flip side of that is 90% does. Um, but I think you need to know what your staff's perceived needs are and then work from there, combine it with what your observations are and try and merge the two into a CPD program that fits and needs of most and i think it's interesting from a maths teacher's perspective here uh, there's so many cpds where i can see the relevance to other subjects but i find it hard to bring that into my own teaching as a math classroom i'm sure you've had the same as a p teacher and i'm sure everyone is actually sitting here going well i teach this subject and when i have cbd i find it hard to relate it to my subject it's, maths teachers we're, we're quite often those people sitting in the back room going oh this, this doesn't help me i know i've been that person um, so it's really hard to, to get, because CPD is normally implemented to a school, isn't it, Mike? You get a speaker in, you get someone in yourself to present to the whole school. And it's really hard to get that person to deliver that something that's going to be relevant to everyone in that room. Whereas 
the ideal of having maybe an individual speaker or training for every single teacher because so it's explicitly read into them it's just not viable so I think as you said it's about hitting as much as possible the needs of the people in the room but also having that kind of um, acknowledgement that there's always going to be that one person in the room maybe that's like I didn't get much out of that and and that's just sadly we can't we can strive for that perf perfect CPD session um, but I'm yet to see that perfect CPD session. In there lies the problem though doesn't it and I know we'll talk about this on, on one of the other parts of this document but that's the 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 lack of impact from one-off training sessions, that one inset day where you sit there in September or January and someone comes in and says, oh, do this, do this, do this, and you walk away from it either overwhelmed with too many things to think about or underwhelmed, when in fact, CPD doesn't have to be like that. You don't always have to do what's always been done. You know, I know a lot of schools now, and I know we're trying to implement this at our school for next year, is about ongoing mentoring of staff. Um, and having those, those conversations with those clear expectations of what impactful teaching looks like, and then coaching staff um, and finding out their needs and trying to meet their needs on a one-to-one -one basis. You have to build the capacity within your school to be able to give that smaller kind of uh, attentive approach to it. Um, and I think an awful lot of schools are going away from spending money on hiring in speakers and consultants who come in for one day, disappear, and the impact gets lost instantly. I think you've got to build capacity within your staff, and I think you've got to build a culture of professional development that is truly ongoing, and you've got to give time to your staff to do that. And going on for that, it's really important to understand professional development is, is not just the person in the room delivering a session. It's not just getting those speakers in, it's stuff we do every single day in schools. It's every conversation we have in the staff room, in the corridor, in meetings. They can all form part of a teacher's professional development. Um, should we move on to part number two, Mike? So part number two says, professional development should be underpinned by robust evidence and expertise. Um, I, I'd be surprised if we have someone listening who's vehemently against that, no. No, it should not be supported by evidence and expertise. I, I'm against this. Um, but the point I thought was really interesting reading this one is professional development is most effective when teachers understand the how and why the practices work. Um, it's, it's all good understanding how something might work or why it might work, but it's bringing those two things together allows us to implement it successfully, but also makes us want to implement it successfully as teachers because we get the impact it's going to have. Yes, and I, I want to address the other aspect of that as well, which is it should be underpinned by robust evidence. Too much of what we do in schools is, I did this, it worked for me once, with one class, for one year. And I, I'm so happy in the UK now that we're starting to get these research schools and these research hubs pop up. And they're starting to spread that idea of research-based CPD getting staff reading recent research papers and sharing that and, and trying things that have been proven um, through educational study to have an impact um, because we can't keep doing what we've always done um, because the context that we're teaching in is constantly evolving and constantly changing. So for me, underpinning everything you do with evidence and explaining to the teachers where this strategy or where this idea comes from 
and how it's had an impact. And then, like you said, how can we apply it to our context? So you outline the why and then you know, adapt it to the, the needs of your students, the need of your staff and make it more contextual. And I think the interesting point is, I know when I, we came to teach in different ways. So I did the Teach First scheme. There was very little in my training before I went into a classroom of how to find research from teachers or research into education. Um, it was only when I started doing my my MA really that I really started thinking about and exploring those things independently. So perhaps it's something we need to, for training schools or when you have new staff joining NQTs, it's something we need to bring in. It's not just how to work in the classroom, but it's how to go away and how to do that research, where to find that information, because it, it's not always easy. Is that not scary though, that we're, we're potentially, and I know a lot of a lot of new teachers are coming straight from university, so might have those skills, um, but also might have a wealth of resources in a university to have those skills. But when you come out into teaching, if you don't have those research skills, how can you teach them to the students, in particular your key stage four and five students? Um, you know, we have to coach our staff in understanding how to find relevant research and how to implement it. And if they have a better understanding of that, then that knowledge gets passed on to the students. And we can teach those skills implicitly and ex explicitly as well. I think it's to do with cultural school, isn't it? I mean, when you were first trained out to teach, Mike, after a day of full timetable, which I, I appreciate you may have done once, um, did you go home and go, oh, do you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to read some EEF. I'm going to read some Sutton Trust. Oh, you're nodding. Don't nod. No, I haven't. I'm oh, sorry, right then. <laughs> yes, I was that person every night. And therein underpins my key issue with this document is it's all good and well writing this stuff down and distributing it to schools. But then if you, you're talking 2016, I mean, I, was, I taught in England in 2016. It was the last year I was in the UK. And I know how much funding got cut in that year or around that time. So it's all good and well saying this, but if you're piling lessons onto people's timetables, if you're busier than ever, if you're doing more accountability and evidence in for external validation than ever, where do you find the time? How do you create the time for your staff? You can't sit there in a budget meeting and say, instead of spending 80% of our budget on, on staffing, we're going to spend 85% of our budget on staffing. So I can give every teacher extra release time to go and research because you simply don't have 85% of your budget to spend on salaries. And that for me is the key, the key flaw with this document is it, it doesn't back itself up in the real world. It's just writing on a bit of paper until you fund schools correctly in order to create that time because you won't get the impact. I, I can't, I don't know any teacher that goes home after a, what was it, 60 hour week you're doing, sitting down on a Saturday or Sunday, having the time to, to research, you either spending that time working or you're spending that time with your family. I would disagree with that because there, there are some teachers that do that and they are fantastic. Go on Twitter and some of the people you you can follow there, they can summarize these documents. I mean, we're talking, uh, talking teacher talk talking ef certain trust you can get those little snippets um, but i agree with you to actually go and really get into the, the research and the expertise it takes time and i suppose that's where the balance of someone in in your role perhaps at school has to be able to make it as easy for the staff as possible whilst appreciating 
they have other commitments and a hundred other one things to do. So it's about making it as easy as possible. And hopefully, I think, as you said, we're starting to see that change in culture. Hopefully being a researcher in a school won't be, you won't be that weird person who does the research in the school. You'll just be a teacher because part of being a teacher in the school will allow you to go away and read and bring up those expertise. Got it. Should we move on? Oh, sorry. No. I was just going to say, if you run your PD program at your school, you've established the conditions where that's, uh, people are capable of doing that. So you, if you say, if you look on e, EEF, you know, and you talk about the biggest impact on students, it is teachers' ability. Yeah. So the vast majority of time, your teachers are outside the classroom that the majority of that time should be spent developing their practice. You know, obviously after lessons are planned and feedback is given. So when you do your PD program, you should be thinking about how can I create time for this? Little and often is definitely the way to go with this. Do you want to move and on? Without, without, going on too much of a without going on too much of a tangent, I think there's also an argument, maybe a different pod for how do you, what sometimes you need to do as a school and as a teacher is maybe different to what the parents or the guardians or your stakeholders perceive need to be done in schools. For example, key stage three homework. We know that it doesn't have a, a massive impact, if any, but our stakeholders want to see homework given quite often in schools. So there's that sense of you've got to use your robust evidence and your expertise, and then you've also got to justify it, which goes back to the why and the how. Um, number three, do you want to lead number three, Mr. Mike? Yes, professional development should include collaboration and expert challenge. Go, what do you, what does that mean to you? Well, I was happy to see on the document one of our favourite lines, which is seek support and challenge, which is a line I know we come out with again and again, talking in almost every context. Teachers need to be supported and they need to be challenged. Um, the one that stood out from this was, um, having multiple opportunities for teachers to practice, which is giving teachers the chance to go and do these skills um, in, in reality, but having not just, as you said, oh, I need to do that in one of my lessons. It's about building it into the, the support structure of the school, um, which I imagine is, is quite a difficult thing, because how do you do that over time when you've got all these other challenges? Um, what, what were your takeaways from this part? Yeah, the term that kept coming back to me was relentless support. Is your culture at your school asking teachers to improve or just to prove? Oh, no, so that's just, a nice. Where'd you take that from? That's nice. Oh, got my sources. <laughs> but are you asking your teachers to constantly prove how good they are at their jobs, or are you giving them opportunities to improve at their, their profession? And if you're relentlessly supporting them, then you're going to give them that opportunity um, to improve as well. And I think that's that's got to come from top down. Uh, you know, I know a lot of the time here we talk about like how much impact does leadership have on what happens in classrooms, and that that is a cultural thing that leaders need to get right. And I get that the pressure on schools to constantly prove is so high. Um, you know, I teach abroad, we don't even have Ofsted, but we still have annual inspections, annual, not just, you know, every, I don't know what it is in the UK now, is it every two to three years, depending on, on what grade you yeah. yeah, and, you know, we're, we're having one every single year, we're having to 
send off our, our quality assurance document every single year. Um, and it's really hard to say to someone who's doing, who's, you know, looking over what you're doing, I'm not interested in proving to you what we can and can't do. It's almost impossible. You're going to have to do it at some point. But you've so got I've to got create got that to... improvement. I've got a question for you, because I know you've tried to implement some mentoring and coaching the school you're currently in. Have you found any resistance to people being coached and mentors, just feeling like they're being observed and being being judged? How do you make it obvious to someone that we're not judging you, we just want to coach you? Whether you're already brilliant, we still we can still help you. So I work in quite a small secondary school, about 450 students. So that gives you an, an idea of the scale of staffing. So at the moment, the coaching mainly comes from me, possibly their head of department. Um, and it's, it's normally given to a teacher who's either requested it or we've identified might benefit from it. Which straight away, if, you, if someone's coming to you saying you need coaching and the assistant head's going to come and coach you, that becomes a really... Um, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And I know how I would have felt as a, a teacher yeah. if that happened to me. So what we're trying to do is build a capacity with our staff to do that. So it's far more peer-to-peer -peer coaching. There's still a structure to it. It's a tight but loose model, um, but it's less threatening and it's more. And I think the way the way we'll go about it at the start of next year, when we, once we've got that group in place who are trained in coaching and capable of coaching impactfully, is we'll then ask for volunteers. Um, and that gives the coaches an opportunity to do it in, in quite a low stakes environment. But also it it shows people that we'd all benefit from coaching. Every single one of us would benefit from coaching. Uh, and hopefully we, we can do that in a less threatening way by that using our capacity. I always found it was very, a school I previously worked in, one, one of the teachers who we knew was a really strong teacher, who I was a new teacher we really looked up to. They were still asking for help and they obviously getting coached and mentored. And it was really, really nice as a new teacher to see someone who was a really good teacher still trying to prove so when someone came to you and went, oh, do you want some coaching this? It wasn't just, oh, I must be doing bad. It was like, no, just we want to get better at teaching. So I think if you're if you're a really good teacher, uh, don't be scared to be that person to still go and ask for coaching and mentoring because it can really help other teachers to see that that's a, a, an OK thing to happen. Um, number four, Mike, was professional development programs should be sustained over time. I know this is what you were talking about earlier. And I think you're ready to go. So what did you take away from this bit? Have a plan. Have a few key foci for the year and stick to them and keep them as themes throughout the year and base all of your CPD around that. You are better doing a few things really, really well than doing a lot of things not very well. That's what it meant to me is that you need to spend at least a year. If, you're, if you say, right, our, our professional need priority as a school is differentiating or feedback or retrieval practice. You spend a year on that, you're going to make some inroads. Um, you might need to change it up after a year to keep engagement high. Um, but if you do a one-off session or even a one you know, a theme for a term, you are not going to get impact. You have to keep coming back to it. It's, it's little and often. I think it'd be that really powerful as a school to stand up at the start of the year and to say for the next two terms, two, three terms, we are all going to improve on our questioning. That's it. That's our number one focus. I think that'd be a really powerful message to send a, a community in a school because then everyone 
has the same goals they know what they want to improve on and it then you start having those conversations in the corridors because everyone knows what they want to improve. when you have those sessions ah, where let's go i'm interrupting you but the, the the flip side of that is going back to your comments on section one is it's all going to well having we're all going to focus on this but then you've got to make it specific to the subject specific to the individual and their needs so it's all good and well saying we're having a focus on this, but you then can't just do what you've always done and focus on one thing. So you can't just keep having inset days or keep having twilight sessions. You've got to create a system that's flexible and adaptable enough to meet everyone's needs. Otherwise, you just won't get the engagement. Yeah, there's there's no point saying like um, we're all going to work on differentiation. See you later. Uh, go do it. Um, but saying as a school, here's some evidence. Here's why we want to improve this. Now you're going to go away into your departments, your year groups, whatever, and you're going to start to focus that. I know that's how school development plans normally work. You have that big Excel document where it kind of follows a flow chart down. Um, but I think it's having everyone pull in the same direction is a really, it's a really powerful thing to be at, even if in schools, in organisations, wherever, it's a really powerful thing to be part of. Um, I thought it was interesting when I said at least two terms, very specific not at least three terms, two and a half terms, like not at least a year, two terms. So that means if you do something for two terms in a day, nailed it. That's not what it says. You'd, you'd hope that's backed up by research, wouldn't it? You'd hope that's backed up by with... You know, the I'd love it if it just Bert and Clive in a room and Sally just gone, ah, two. It's similar to like that. You should do 10,000 steps a day and it literally just plucked out of thin air because the number sounds good. You hope good it's enough. not like that. Um, and then part number five is professional development should be prioritised by school leadership, obviously. Um, so do you feel, I'm going to throw it straight at you, Mike, um, when you're in the big dog meetings talking about how important you all are and how fantastic you all are, no, that doesn't happen. Um, how often does professional development come up as part of the school's planning in, in the schools you've been in? Let's not talk about any single school in the schools you've worked in not as much as it should and that's not a criticism of any school that's a reflection of we should all be spending more time on that um i i'm like a head of department in a way because i'm in charge of teaching and learning so i, I will always you know like when you're a head of department it's but what's best for my my subject yeah. you know yeah you, although you're going to take that that level five leadership and you're going to look at the bigger picture you're always going to hone in and it's your job to fight for what's right for your your subject i'm always going to fight what's right for my area of responsibility so if i was in charge of data and curriculum i'd probably be fighting for more pd time for that and if i was in charge of safeguarding i'd probably be fighting for more pd time for that because it's my number one priority we've spoke about this before i think on episode one where your your school has a, you should have a set of prioritized values so I think we spoke about um, uh, Disneyland, isn't it? Disneyland, they've got four and safety is number one and putting on a good show, I think is number two or three. So much like your teaching, Mike. <laughs> yeah, safety, number one, there you go. Um, if, you know, Mickey Mouse sees a kid about to climb over a fence and hurt themselves, Mickey Mouse will stop having photos of people and run and make sure the child is okay. I'm confused, we've both taught a Mickey Mouse. 
Like we both, we both we, have talked. I'm now confused. We have taught a student called Mickey Mouse, but that that is definitely another podcast. Um, <laughs> what I but, thought was interesting about this part, and it's something I'm really I, I come back to a lot on our pods and just general conversation is developing genuine professional trust. Um, and that trust comes down to so many things to that culture of trust then allows everyone to buy in to whatever the school's trying to do in terms of professional development. If I, it's all well and good you stand up there saying coaching is going to help me, but if I don't trust what you're saying, or I don't trust the culture of the school I'm in, it doesn't matter how much you're backed up by research. It doesn't matter how good the program is. It doesn't matter if you're going to um, come and check up on me. If I don't trust the culture of the school, then I'm not going to buy into it. Um, so that's when I think culture precedes anything like this. If you don't have the right culture, it doesn't matter how well you follow a five point plan because it's what just you're not saying is culture each strategy for breakfast. Um, I, I never taught strategy. What was he like? Coach is definitely right. You you will not get anywhere unless you've got a great culture of professional development. But you have to you have to understand that different people are going to adopt at different times. You're always going to have your early adopters who are going to be banging on your office door and saying, oh, "I've read this new research paper. You should read this. You should read that." And you, you're going to have to focus those people. You're going to have the, the majority of your staff somewhere in the middle, kind of go along with it and. And they're going to work on that feedback loop. You know, is it working? Am I seeing the benefits? Okay, now I'm on board. And you're always going to have your late adopters. Now, your late adopters, the people who are reluctant to get involved in this, they're not necessarily your cultural assassins, um, to quote the Barcelona Way book. Okay, you've got cultural architects, these people who kind of spread this good practice across school and really get on board with everything. And you've got these cultural assassins, um, they describe it as, but just because someone's a late adopter doesn't mean that they're one of those people who's going to be really, really negative for the long term. They just want to see proof. And you've in your action planning, when you're trying to implement something new like this, you've got to understand at what time you need to have those little light touches with those people and how you're going to approach them and how you're going to engage them. That's the hardest part, isn't it? If you, you take the future engaged deliver model of leadership, it's easy, easy to identify a vision. And, speak to any school leader out there, speak to any school teacher out there and they can tell you the vision of what it should look like. Delivering it, you could deliver it easily as a school leader. You could go into people's classrooms and say, you're going to do this, like it or lump it. If it's not, not right school for you, move on. But that step in the middle of engagement, that's the hardest bit. And that's the, the bit that school leaders, I would imagine, spend most of their time working. So you have to prioritize that. And like I was saying, in terms of your values, if safety is number one for a school, which it always should be, teaching and learning and the quality of teaching and learning should be number two. Not the quality of outcomes, because you, you're interested in quality outcomes. Your extracurricular program will just be intervention after intervention after intervention for the kids. And you'll end up in these ridiculous situations like we had years ago where students were sitting the European computer driving license in two days off timetable to give them an extra GCSE. If you actually want to drive improvement at school, then teaching and learning should be your number two value. And the most amount of your time you spend with your staff should be about professional development. That would be my rant about education. But there are lots of different priorities in school and that's really, really hard to do. I think it's one of those things where, as you said, we all 
in schools, we know what should happen and we all know what we kind of want to happen. But sometimes making those things happen is some of the hardest things to do. As a teacher, I want all my pupils to do uh, well in their exams. Um, getting them to do it is much harder. I want all my pupils to be these autonomous learners and independent learners who are well-rounded beings. It's really difficult to do. It doesn't matter how fancy a logo I have at the front of my class and the word vision in a different font and culture in a different color that suits everything. If I don't implement it, um, it's worth nothing. I think we'll take a quick break there, Mike, get people to have a biscuit, have a think. And then there's, I've got a point that's on the page in front of me that I'd like to discuss when we're back, cliffhanger. Welcome back to Team Teaching, the educational podcast you can listen to in your tea break. Mike, I left it on a cliffhanger there. I would like to talk about the line that says teachers for professional development to be most effective need to take responsibility for their own professional development. Where does the responsibility for the teacher end to be a better teacher and where does it start for the school or are they the same thing? School need to create the environment for that to happen. They need to facilitate that process. But ultimately, professional development is something you do, not something that's done to you. So there's so many people, I hear it in teaching all the time. I've heard it in every school I've ever worked in. Like, when are we getting the next speaker in? When are you going to teach us how to do this or that? It, it, that's not professional development. And that teaching isn't as simple as someone coming in and telling you the answer and you just replicating that in your classroom. You've got to own your leadership. So, sorry, own your development. So schools need to create that environment. They need to create the time to do it, the resources. So teaching and learning libraries, how many schools have the funds to go and create a teaching and learning library? How many schools have the time to create research book clubs to send out newsletters to, to staff to circulate research papers that might help them these are where i think you need to create the time and once you've created the time then you say to the teachers you are in charge of this you are driving this and again have freedom within a structure that tight but loose model so you know we're going to have regular updates with you or your head of department is going to have a regular update with you How's your professional development going? What are you reading? What are you trying? How's it working? And just have those light touches regularly. And I think that's how you create that ownership. But you have to, you have to encourage staff to have responsibility for that. Um, one, of my, um, one of the schools I worked in previously, when I started there, they had a sign outside every teacher's classroom, which was what you re I think it was what are you doing at the moment and a lot of teachers had oh I'm trying to learn to scuba dive I'm trying to run 10k and then there were some teachers who had oh I'm trying to get better at this area of teaching and it was really interesting just having that little sign outside it caused teachers to just think about how they're going to improve um, in everything I think some of the best conversations some of the best professional development I've ever had is chatting with someone in the corridor chatting with someone in the staff room about how their last lesson went. Having those cultures which allow people to open up and trust each other and have those conversations is always better, I think, than having an outside talker in. Those outside talkers are brilliant. They can restart the conversation, but you never have an outside speaker to, to end a conversation. They always start the conversation, or that's my perception of it. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that the question you should always be asking after it 
a session like that, or you, you probably should have planned before you even got that person in is now what? We've got this expert in, and I can't remember which one of the standards was that you need to have expertise. You've got this expert in, now what? What do we do with that now? What is our follow-on program and how do we relentlessly support our teachers in getting better and improving? I think, I think of when we had um, Kate, Kate Jones on to talk about retrieval practice. If you listen to that podcast, if you listen back to it, that doesn't make you really good at retrieval practice. But what it made me do is consider my own practice and then go away and do some reading. And I'm still trying to implement it in my, my online tutoring at the moment. I'm trying to think about how I bring in retrieval practice and how I do it. And that, that is ongoing for me. So it's, that started the conversation that makes me want to go away and take ownership of that bit of CBD. But just, just saying, oh, I listen to Kate Jones. I follow her on Twitter does not make me brilliant at retrieval practice. Um, so I, that's to me what take responsibility means. It means I, I want to go away and learn, but the school can always help me in that by, by guiding me, giving me the opportunities or making me, even making me want to be a better teacher. Um, I've worked in schools that have been tough, tough organisations to work in and becoming a better teacher has been very low down on my list of priorities um and i've worked in schools where i love being there and i want to be the best teacher i can because i love i love the school and i, I love the direction it's taken so i think that's where the kind of the the where culture becomes professional development comes um if a school has the right culture then i believe and trust that most teachers will want to take responsibility i've met, how many teachers have you met mike who have said, I don't want to get better at what I do. I, I, like, who is that teacher? No. They don't exist. And if you design a one-size-fits-all prescriptive CPD program based around the image of teachers being like that, then you will let every single one of your teachers down. Because and they I'm won't not... get better. And you, you just create a, a culture of mistrust. So I think we'd really like to hear from our listeners of maybe what's the best CPD, best professional development you've had. Um, have you read through this document? Do you agree, disagree with what we're hearing? Um, you can talk to us on Twitter at T and Teaching. That's the letter T and Teaching um, on Twitter and get involved in conversation. Mike, I suggest we take a very quick break, come back, and then we'll just sum up with our takeaways from today's conversation. We'll speak to you all in a moment. Welcome back. It's no secret between me and Arthur that he loves throwing those breaks in there because I'm the one who edits this podcast and that he knows every time he chucks a break in there for you to get a new biscuit, I have to do more editing. So that's a good part. I think we should consider that as we take a break and go away. And <laughs> <laughs> no more breaks. One day we're just going to do a podcast episode where we go the whole way through. No editing required. <laughs> uh, what's your key takeaway, Arthur? For me, it's it's that last point we were actually talking about of um, taking responsibility. And I think that word taking responsibility can apply to everyone. I think the school needs to take responsibility for understanding that its employee, employees, um, it has a responsibility to, to give them the opportunity to, to um, develop their craft. But I also think as teachers, we have a responsibility to stand up and say, I'm going to go away and or I'm going to make time to do this. I'm going to make time in the school um, and if there is no time I'm going to 
I'm going to find a way to make this work. Whether it's if I work with colleagues as a department, I'm going to set up a, a work group. But um, taking responsibility at all levels in the school was kind of the, the thing that really struck me. Yeah, I'm just going to say on your point there, more teaching is not better than better teaching. Like more if, teaching, I had a if you're a teacher called more, I think you're an excellent teacher. <laughs> the really the key way to go. One of the worst. <laughs> if, I, if I had a kid, I would prefer they spent less time with a great teacher than more time with a less good teacher. And I think that if schools put that at the heart of what they do, then if you're constantly focused on getting your teachers better, then your, your results and your, your student outcomes will improve 100%. But anyway, my key takeaway, that was my little key takeaway from your key takeaway. Now my other key takeaway. And then I'll give us a key yeah. takeaway and your key takeaway based on my key takeaway. Excellent. Uh, would be research. Make everything research-based. So if you're a teacher, only do things that are backed up by research and they're proven to work and then just adapt them for your context uh, and give yourself room for error know that it's going to go wrong before it goes right and be patient with yourself and don't judge yourself too harshly if you're a cpd lead only design a cpd program that is going to work based on the research so if it's that two-term thing if that's generally based on research which we hope it is then make your cpd last for a minimum of two terms um, and only do things that are backed up by the research for me that's really really important because why why wouldn't you so someone's listening to this pod they're like yes research where does mike harrell go for his research the education endowment fund the foundation sorry eef definitely um i find a lot of mine on twitter i'm not gonna lie um, but also the organization i work for we're really really lucky that we actually have a professional library available to us with research journals available so we can search that at any point and and find current um, topics on that but there are lots of educational journals out there that you can subscribe to one of my, one would, of my recommendations. the best place the best place to offer would be teaching and learning library at a school and if you haven't got one go and ask why you haven't got one i would add to that one thing i really like is at the end of this document there's a lovely list of references so if this is a summary document, so if you're really interested in a specific part of the document, go away and look at the references. This is true for every journal, every properly researched document read. Go away and read those things. It's a fantastic way to get real detail. You do not need to go away and read the whole document. Go away, read the summary, the conclusion. And if you're interested, go back and read the mythology and all that. Um, and these you can find these quite often online. Google Scholar is a great place to start. Just type in the name and more than often you'll find them somewhere available to read or ask your school, um, ask the university you were part of, your, we're all alumni. There's always a way to get access to these documents. So always go and look at the references and, and just get reading. An add-on from that is also share them. If you haven't got a, a small community of teachers that you're comfortable talking to about professional development at school, find them. Find people who are like-minded at your school, share these articles, have a cup of tea. You could call it tea and teaching, who knows? Have a cup of tea, get together, spend 20 minutes talking about what you've read and how you could do it. And you will be amazed at how much benefit that will have on you and 
how nice it is just to break up the working day every so often with a conversation like that. So and plus, I think we get royalties every time anyone says tea and teaching. If they have a cup of tea and involve teaching, I think we get royalties. I think it's a lot of money. Um, it's through the PG Tip sponsorship. Oh, well, I'm waiting for that. Yeah. Yeah. On the big days, like the big days we can only dream of. Um, anyway, I think that's a really good document. We'll put a link to that on, um, on Twitter. Um, so go away and have a read. If you agree, disagree with us, anything to add, please get involved at Tea and Teaching um, at Twitter. Um, Mike, it's been a pleasure as always. It's always a pleasure and it's never a chore, Arthur. Oh, you're going to make me a mosh. And on that teary note, I think we should say goodbye. Uh, I'll see you soon. Speak to you soon, buddy. Take care. All right. Oh, you know, man, oh, you know, man, oh, you know, man.